Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 130, Tide Mills in Early Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to be speaking to Earl Taylor, president of the Dorchester Historical Society and one of the founders of the Tide Mill Institute. He's going to tell us about how early Bostonians harnessed the power of the tides in Boston Harbor to grind their grain, manufacture products like snuff and spices, and even produce baby carriages. He'll tell us about the advantages tidal power had over other types of mills, how tide mills shaped the landscape of Boston, and why tide mills went out of fashion. But before we talk about tide mills, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is the October 19th, 1911 issue of Life magazine. Before it became a photo-heavy weekly news magazine, Life was founded as a humor and general interest magazine. The first literary editor was one of the founders of the Harvard Lampoon, and he brought that acerbic wit to life in the 1880s. By the 19-teens, the magazine had a well-established formula of clever prose, illustrations, brief poems, and editorial cartoons. It was the first venue where Charles Dana Gibson brought the Gibson Girl to the page. And in October of 1911, it released a satirical Boston number. The cover sets the tone with a bespectacled figure in outdated knee pants using a wooden pointer to gesture at a wall map labeled Map of the World. The map itself only showed Boston's Shawmut Peninsula. Inside the magazine, Boston suffers a gentle send-up from people who are obviously familiar with our city, but who are writing for a national audience. Early in the issue, a column lays out all the ways Boston dominates the world's other major cities. The Perfect City Why laugh at Boston? Boston has more culture than Athens, Georgia, more art than Paris, Kentucky, more age than China, Maine. More manufacturers than Birmingham, Alabama. More colleges than Berlin, Connecticut. More shipping than Amsterdam, New York. More cathedrals than Britain, North Carolina. More population than London, Ontario. More Irishmen than Dublin, New Hampshire. More Poles than Poland, Maine. More waterways than Venice, Louisiana. And more law than Rome. New York. Another passage pokes fun at our high regard for our own intellects in a column called The Cerebral City. Boston broods by the margin of the sea. She dreams of that golden age when her brains and her beans, her poetry and her pork were the standards of the continent, when her rum and her religion were the hottest in the market, when her sons wrote sonnets in Sanskrit, gave greetings in Greek, indicted mortgages in Latin, and bills of sale in Etruscan and when some of the first citizens spoke English as fluently as Bostonese. Those were the halcyon days before the Celto-Latin invasion and conquest, before St. Patrick evicted St. Botolf, and ere yet the city of saints had become a health resort for the island of saints. In that golden age when America was Massachusetts, plus a few minor mortgaged places south and west, Boston was the intellectual center of the continent. Then, theology and tautology— Doctrine and dyspepsia were Boston synonyms. Every family had its own poet and pamphleteer. Prudery and pantalettes were the dominant features of the landscape. 
Culture, codfish, and calico constantly concerned the conscience and the conduct of the community. And genealogy, as a branch of imaginative literature, was still in its infancy. Even the ads are fun to review with full-page spreads from many now-defunct auto manufacturers, several brands of men's sock garters, including Boston padded garters, and fancy cocktail bitters. Perhaps the most fun of all is a small inset ad for an illustrated book of sexology. It advertised, A happy marriage depends largely on a knowledge of the whole truth about self and sex and their relation to life and health. This knowledge does not come intelligently of itself, nor correctly from ordinary, everyday sources. It says that the book imparts in a clear, wholesome way knowledge a young man should have, knowledge a young husband should have, knowledge a father should have, knowledge a father should impart to his son, medical knowledge a husband should have. You don't have to haunt antiques markets and bookstores to find a copy of this old magazine. The whole thing's been uploaded to Google Books, and it's worth a few minutes' perusal, if you can ignore the anti-Semitic caricatures and a few of the illustrations. We'll have a link in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a talk about two of the men who helped create the popular image of Boston that life parodied in 1911. Presidents John Adams and John Quincy Adams are baked deep into Boston's DNA, And they're the subjects of a talk at the Massachusetts Historical Society on Saturday, March 4th at 4.30 p.m. Nancy Eisenberg is the T. Harry Williams Professor of American History at Louisiana State University and the author of the New York Times bestseller White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. And Andrew Burstein is the Charles P. Mancha Professor of History at LSU and author of numerous books on American political culture, including an earlier collaboration with Nancy Eisenberg, Madison, and Jefferson. Together, they wrote a new volume on the two presidents' Adams and their reactions to popular sentiment and demagoguery in the early republic. The Problem of Democracy, The Presidents' Adams Confront the Cult of Personality, cast John and John Quincy as independent thinkers, unbound by party loyalties, and it traces their resistance to the hero worship of Franklin, Washington, Jefferson, and Jackson. Here's how the MHS website describes their talk. John and John Quincy Adams were brilliant, prickly politicians, and arguably the most independently minded among leaders of the founding generation. Distrustful of blind allegiance to a political party, they brought skepticism of a brand new system of government to the country's first 50 years. Join Eisenberg and Burstein as they boldly recast the historical role of the Adamses and reflect on how father and son understood the inherent weaknesses in American democracy. Tickets are $10, except for MHS members and EBT cardholders, and registration is required. We'll link to more information in this week's show notes. Before we begin our interview, we want to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Much as we love researching and recording this show, it does come with monthly expenses. By supporting us for as little as $2 per month, you can help us break even. Plus, there are rewards at the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels. For anyone contributing at $5 per month or more, we're going to start hosting a monthly video chat where we can talk to supporters about Boston history or whatever comes up. 
We hope you'll support the show and join us for our first video chat on April 30th. And we want to say a big thank you to everyone who has already contributed. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Since 2002, Earl Taylor's been the president of the Dorchester Historical Society, and he's also treasurer and a co-founder of the Tide Mill Institute. We encountered him as a speaker at History Camp in March, and he gave a fascinating presentation that we want to ask him about today. So, Earl Taylor, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to start right out with the Tide Mill Institute, which you just told us about as we were getting ready to start recording. What is the Tide Mill Institute? The Tide Mill Institute is a group of individuals who came together to explore the history of ancient Tide Mill sites and to think about the reuses of some of those sites. Uh, it started in 2005, and this year we'll have our I believe, 15th conference in October. So I guess that leads to the obvious question for our listeners. What is a tide mill? Well, most water mills are alike. So we all have have in our minds a picture of a, a river mill or a mill on the bank of a stream where the topography drops off so that when a dam is built, uh, then there's a reservoir of water and the drop-off in the land allows that water to be used to power a a mill wheel. But on the coast, uh, tide mills were built, and uh, essentially, of course, every mill needs a reservoir of water, so a dam was built. And when the tide was at its high, the dam gates would close automatically or could be closed manually. And then when the tide had receded sufficiently, the mill could operate until, of course, the tide came back up again to impede the the action of the wheel. But the real definition of a tide mill, I think, is the is the fact that you have to wait for the tide. So even if the the tide pond were uh, full of fresh water, if it was located along the coast, it would need to wait for the tide to recede before it could operate. So. The action of the the dam in the case of a tide mill isn't holding back a stream or a river. It's actually retaining some of the high tide to keep that in reserve to run the wheel during low tide. Do I have that right? That's right. So in theory, you could have a a tide mill pond that was full of fresh water, though that would be very unlikely along the coast because as the tide rises, that it would be more efficient to allow the tide to fill the pond. Uh, and to um, then use it when the tide recedes. When were the first tide mills built in this area? Uh, In the 1600s, soon after the the Puritans arrived. It was an ancient technology, uh, we know from archaeological digs in Europe and especially in, in Ireland, that these existed from many, many, at least over a thousand years ago. And so they brought this technology with them when they came. I believe the first mills in the Massachusetts Bay Colony were were river mills. But soon thereafter, we, we find the tide mills being installed as well. I know in the past we've looked at specifically at Boston's use of windmills and then also in Dorchester, the use of early use of, of river mills. Why would tide mills be a superior choice for this area? 
Well, sometimes I suppose it was just the land a person owned that dictated what kind of mill he could erect if he wanted to be a miller. But uh, some of the advantages of tide mills is that they can be operated all year long if, if you want to. The river mill sometimes would go dry in the summer months and would also freeze over in winter months. So tide mills being using salt water would be very unlikely to freeze over. And of course, the tide rises and falls all summer long. So the investment uh, would be similar. You, the dam and the mill operation would be a similar investment. So it depends on the topography, I suppose. So I guess one element of the local topography that lends itself more to tide mills than to river mills is just how low-lying these coastal areas where a tide mill was built would have been. That We don't have the great Merrimack River falling down out of the New Hampshire mountains or the, the Fall River Falls. We have sort of slow-moving Charles and Neponset River valleys. Well, we do. I mean, though there were plenty of mills along the Neponset over the years, uh, certainly Stoughton's Mill in 1634 on the Neponset, and then uh, on the, of course, Mother's Brook was, was created as an early engineering project, and there are many mills on that route from the Charles to the Neponset. At History Camp, you talked about a lot of local tide mills from the North Shore to the South Shore and right in Boston itself. But before we talk about some of the specific mills you've researched, I want to ask how you first got interested in this topic and then maybe also how you go about researching historic tide mills. The way I became interested in the topic was that as president of the Dorchester Historical Society, we were looking into the history of the James Blake House, which is currently the oldest house in the city of Boston, uh, still existing. And we found uh, that James Blake married Elizabeth Clapp, whose father owned a share of the Tide Mill on the South Bay. So the Clapp land was adjacent to the South Bay when it was a bay. Uh, and the contours of that bay have changed many times over the years, larger and smaller, and vice versa. But now, of course, it's it's a shopping center and a big residential development. We believe that early Tide Mill was located about where the uh, railroad trestle is near the South Bay over Massachusetts Avenue. So uh, that piqued our my interest in tide mills. What were they? <laughs> uh, why were they part of the Clapp family and so on? And and discovered that uh, that mill existed up until the 1850s. Of course, the Clapps had many business interests from that grist mill operation in the early years uh, to tanneries and then later on to horticulture. So it, it fit the whole picture of, of the Clapp family and the no, the Historical Society owns not only the Blake House, but the remnant of the Clapp family estate on Boston Street. So that that history was important to us overall. So at some point, you must have branched out from researching the Clapp family, or the Blake and the Clapp family's specific interests in a tide mill to a more general interest in tide mills, at least around, around the Boston area. Well, yes. Uh, in my attempts at doing research, 
I, I contacted anyone I could who knew something about tide mills, and John Goff of Salem was one of those people, and, and uh, another fellow from Maine, uh, Bud Warren, who the three of us decided finally together that we needed to explore this topic in a more formal way, and that's how the Tide Mill Institute was formed. And then we, we've had the annual conference each year that where we invite speakers who have an interest. Nancy Seasholes was certainly one of those speakers in the early years for her work on, on making land in Boston, where a lot of these tide mills used to be located. And then various other scholars, and over the years, several from Europe, uh, one talking about South America. So um, I think the essential piece of tide mills is is you need a kind of certain height of tide of tide in order to operate one. So there are places in the world that where they could not be operated, and then other places in the world where that difference between high and low tides in certain areas of the world may reach 30 feet, which would be a very powerful force. Uh, in our case, I, I believe our tide range is about 10 to 12 feet. Yeah, I've, I've read about 10 feet in the past, which doesn't seem like much compared to if, if some <laughs> available areas have 30 feet. What was the clap mill used for? It was a grist mill, so for grinding grain. We, we presume in the earliest years for corn, but then uh, probably wheat and rye and other uh, grains. And the local agricultural land doesn't support wheat and rye as well as those were supported in England. There are other parts of the United States that do better at those grains, but we certainly grew some in this area. And what were the other common types of mills in this area? Well, for tide mills, uh, we we have um, chocolate mills and spice mills, uh, fulling mills, which is beating woolen cloth until it, it can be used to, to make it, – until it's pliable and can be used to make clothing. Um, what else? Uh, certainly many mills – they were paper mills along the rivers – uh, not sure. I don't think we ever had a paper mill operation in a tide mill. Would they have been used for things like uh, cutting lumber, making Definitely ports? cutting lumber. Uh, certainly in Maine, there are lots of those. In the local area, uh, my knowledge about cutting lumber was for lighter uses, like um, doll carriages and picture frames and interior house ornaments. So perhaps it was where the where the force of the, the tide mill pond wasn't quite as great. Right. Maybe our small tides are moving a small saw. <laughs> um, well, exactly. Or, you know, a, a tide mill can operate when the tide falls sort of to the lower levels of the mill wheel. It doesn't have to wait until it's full low tide. Uh, so in the period when the, there's still a little drag on the mill wheel, you could operate for light industry. And then when the tide clears the bottom of the, the mill wheel, then can do the stronger work, the, the work that requires more force until, of course, the tide comes back in and impedes the wheel again. So that sounds like something that sounds like a very similar, simple design where you have a dam across a tidal creek and slowly let the water run back out of that actually introduces a lot of flexibility in the different types of work that it could do at different points in that, that tidal cycle. Are there 
Are there designs of tidal mills besides simply throwing a dam across a creek? <laughs> uh, well, there are there are boat mills. Uh, those are uh, I don't know of a I have an actual one in our area, but a, a boat mill is a boat or other barge kind of structure that can be tethered to the land, and then as the water flows along beside it. The water can operate a wheel, and of course you could set this up to work in either a rising tide or an ebbing tide. Now, I thought I thought you had mentioned during your talk at History Camp that there was a boat mill at was it at Shirley Gut or at somewhere? At Shirley Gut, there was one proposed, but we don't know that it ever existed. So it, it was in the uh, records of the legislature, but we don't know that it actually was built. Gotcha. What would something like that have been used for if it had been built? <laughs> I, I know that some of some of them have been used for grinding flour, and I suspect that that's always been the greatest use for tide mills in this area, certainly. So in terms of um, operation of tide mills, I think one of the interesting features is that we haven't mentioned is that the tide miller would need to alter his schedule every day to follow the, the tide, not the clock. Oh, that is an interesting point. That's certainly a different lifestyle than somebody who was operating a river mill. That's right. So, And, of course, you could do this twice per 24-hour cycle. So a miller's life might be very complicated and difficult in terms of getting sleep. Now, do you think from what you've uncovered, would that also have an impact on the miller's customers, the farmers or whoever was bringing a product in to be ground or processed at the mill, or would they sort of just accept everything and hold it in reserve until the mill was operational? I believe that they, they would store all of the, the grain at the, in the mill building. So at the upper levels, the, the grain would be carried to the upper levels of the mill building, either manually or th- through the use of an elevator or, you know, possibly top powered by the tide as well to push that grain up to the top so it could be fed down through the hopper for the for the grist milling operation. So what was the business structure for somebody who operated a mill, whether it was a, a tidal mill or a river mill, a windmill? Were they being paid by the farmer who brought in grain? Were they be being how how was the business structured in those times? Well, it was structured that the miller could take a portion, say an eighth or a twelfth of the uh, production from the farmer's grain. Later on, that did translate into a, a fee instead of a, a portion of the production. Hmm. Do you have any insight into sort of the other types of mill besides grist mills, if somebody was grinding snuff or chocolate or right well we we know that the mail in revere did turn to spices in the 1800s so at that point uh, the typical spice was sold as a whole item like a, a nutmeg or you know a bag of nutmeg whole nutmegs and then they they would need to be ground in the home so the slade mill in revere came up with the idea of, of grinding that and uh, and providing it in convenient package sizes so that uh, it seemed, became a popular item in, in, for, for sale. And that's where they, they made most of their money. Uh, later on, they acquired a company called Bell's Seasoning and 
course, we all know the poultry seasoning. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that gives us a good segue since you mentioned uh, the Slades Mill in Revere. Can we just sort of take a survey of Greater Boston Harbor and, and where tide mills were located from the 17th to the 19th centuries? Sure. So they ranged from Revere to Quincy uh, and all the waterways in between. So one of the, the places that people may not think of is the Mystic River. And there was a tide mill as far up as Arlington. Oh, now, wow. of course, the Mystic is a very different creature now from what it used to be. And I think all of our waterways have been somewhat altered, but perhaps the Mystic most of all. But there, there was salt water all the way up into Arlington. And so then the wood mill, uh, a man named Wood, uh, the wood mill in Arlington produced uh, uh, the the doll carriages I mentioned once before and some house uh, ornamentation for the interior of the houses, so uh, like shelf brackets and that kind of product. And so there must have been other tide mills when there, wherever there was a sort of a convenient body of water that could be dammed off to hold the the full base and the uh, sort of the upper portion of right. the the reservoir. So they 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 were. At least three in Medford along the Mystic. Of course, we know that there are about some of the ones in Boston from many, many talks around Boston over the years about the Back Bay and about uh, uh, the Mill Pond down toward the North End, uh, where the Bullfinch Triangle is today. Uh, those were convenient coves to be dammed. Yeah, I think to the extent that most of our listeners have heard of a, a, a tide mill at all. It's probably in the context of the mill pond where the bullfinch triangle is today, which unfortunately there is a, a mill stone standing on the sidewalk to mark uh, sort of the spot where that was in operation, but no interpretation right. of the millstone to tell anybody <laughs> passing what it's there for. That's right. Um, so we do need to petition for some kind of interpretation of that stone. And I, yeah. some people then also probably know the, the story of the Back Bay as a tidal power project. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, of course, that was built to be able to have continuous operation with uh, a receiving basin and then a, a uh, an upper basin where the, the water would be held for the dams. And then the, the outflow from the, the mills would go into the receiving basin to wait until the tide was low. Uh, so it they would be able to operate continuously. It didn't work out quite as well as, well as planned. So I've heard that the, the original plan for the Back Bay called for, I think, around 80 mills to operate simultaneously. Right. And um, What was that number actually once it opened? It was a small number. Uh, I'm guessing somewhere around 8 to 10 at the maximum. That's and, no good. And I think one of the, the biggest problem was the mistake in in estimating the mill power for each of the mills mm -hmm. and so that it wasn't quite as attractive to put a mill there as, as everyone thought it might be it's interesting you would think that somebody would know better by then if i think of the the mill pond over at bullfinch triangle that was built i think almost 200 years before the Back Bay project was attempted to think they'd have a better <laughs> handle on, on, on tidal power by then. 
You would think so, but we all uh, seem to get taken in by by charlatans, <laughs> <laughs> even if and they may not have intended to be charlatans, but <laughs> they can sell a good project. Were tide mills unique to New England, or were they being built in other parts of the country as well? We know that there were rice mills in the Carolinas, and there's a whole book on them. Uh, the, there, the tide range is very small, and so the, the power could be used only for light work, and there was some operation with the rice production that could be uh, mill-powered, and so they were used there in very low country. And in Virginia, there was one in a place called Mob Jack Bay, but um, it, it's been preserved and the building is still there. I believe that was a grist mill as well. There were some in Long Island and uh, you think along the Gowanus Canal on Long Island and then further out in some of the other towns. And, and then on the coast of Maine, there were in practically every little cove. So for the Tide Mill Institute, are you examining the tide mills in other areas as well, or is that more focused on New England or even the, the Boston area? No, we are, are trying to give programs on everywhere in the world, but we'd like to focus on North America since there is a group called TIMS that it covers Europe, and so they, they've done a good job with that, and, and they're continuing to do so. So we are somewhat behind in, in North America. And that's where we're concentrating our efforts. So one thing that just came to mind, we were talking about the tide mills that are known in Boston, which are the Back Bay and the Bullfinch Triangle. And I, those are famously both areas that were filled in to create neighborhoods in Boston. And I think you mentioned earlier in the context of, of some of the Tide Mill Institute talks that that holds more widely that there are other areas where uh, places that were used for tide mills became made land. Why are those two tied together? Why do tide mills seem to coincide with areas that later get developed into dry land? Well, it's in the Boston area, certainly we have this insatiable demand for more land, for more space to add people and, and the businesses that serve people. And the way we've done so in Boston is to expand the coastline. Well, of course, the tide mills were at the coastline, and so those were places that got filled in and uh, covered over with playgrounds and commercial businesses and factories and so on. The outliers in the, the mill in Revere plus the Souther Mill in Quincy, the buildings still exist, uh, probably because development pressure was not so great. Uh, the, uh, another reason perhaps for the loss of tide mill sites uh, is that the buildings are not particularly picturesque. So when, before the, the modern interpretation or uh, movements in historic preservation, uh, people perhaps were more attracted to the appearance of a building in order for it to... Uh, to be saved at his historic monument. And tide mill buildings are pretty uh, drab, built for just a purpose. They're, and they're not much more than a box. And uh, probably in today's world, they would have been substandard construction built only to 
manage the operation of the mill and, and not for you know large numbers of people or or uh, with proper <laughs> fire protections or any of that so uh, I, I think the historic preservation movement probably didn't discover tide mills until it was too late. Certainly, land could have been filled in around tide mill buildings, and we could have preserved a few, but we didn't. So you're speaking of tide mills as something that needs historic preservation. So to that point, how recently were tide mills still in operation in the Boston area? How long ago was that given up on? I believe that... It would have been the late 19th century. The Slade Mill in Revere still operated into the 1920s, but it had switched to electricity. Uh, certainly steam power took over the Souther operation in Quincy, so that one lasted only to the third quarter of the, of the 19th century as a tidal mill-powered operation. Uh, so in this area... It was certainly the 19th century. It was the last that we saw. Now, it sounds like basically a century has gone by since people were operating tide mills in Boston, but it, there's a lot of recent interest in harnessing the tides again, but for electricity generation in, in places around the world. How do those efforts compare to traditional tide mills? Well, for any significant electricity production, a facility would need to be huge. And so there are a couple in the world, one at La Rance in France, uh, that is a tidal barrage. And so it's a great uh, bridge-like structure, but with turbines in it, and the tide flowing in and out can uh, operate those turbines to create electrical electricity. The more modern movement is in-stream production, which means uh, putting usually a, a turbine of some kind at the bottom of a tidal inflow or outflow, a tidal area, in order to take advantage of that movement of the tide, uh, sometimes usually tethered to the floor of the, the ocean, but it can be also floating at, at sea at sea level, and um, as long as it's tethered, so it's something like a boat mill. And these it sounds like like a boat mill. They don't require a dam to hold back the tides. That's correct. Uh, I think some of the concerns are about uh, the preservation of the the wildlife in the ocean, and um, I believe some of them have found that there have been some damage to fish. Um, though I don't know that the studies are complete, so we don't know for sure if it's more than natural um, loss of wildlife around these structures. So there's a lot more research to be done, but it's a promising uh, method of, of electricity production that has no bad effects <laughs> uh, in terms of polluting the atmosphere or the, the world. It seems to me that tide mill generation or electricity generation could be tied with some of the plans for cities uh, to manage the rising sea levels. So where new canals have been proposed, even in Boston, at times we could certainly think about electricity production in those canals that are 
meant to uh, to soften the effects of uh, the the rise in the tide, the rise in the sea level. So now that we know that many of the places where tide mills were historically located have been redeveloped as as made land, and a lot of them are are gone. Are there places in the greater Boston area where we can go to see a tide mill today? Yes. Uh, uh, the Slade Mill in Revere, the building still exists. It's now a residential development uh, with several apartments, but uh, it, it stands at 770 Revere Beach Parkway. And, of course, I think it's the setting that's probably more important there. It is, there's nothing left inside for the tide mill operation. And then another one is is on the southern artery in Quincy, the Souther Tide Mill. Uh, this still exists and is uh, owned by the city of Quincy, but administered by the friends of the Souther Tide Mill. And uh, their website is southertidemill.org, and you can find a great deal more about that one. And eventually, I think there will be interpreted programming in that building. Where can people go to learn more about tide mills in general or tide mills around the Boston area? Are there resources online? At, I think our website, the tidemillinstitute.org, is probably the starting point for all that. Otherwise, research is, is tedious, like most historic research. <laughs> Earl Taylor, I want to say thank you very much for joining us today. If people want to follow you online or see more of your work, uh, how can they do that? Uh, well, uh, they they can follow the Dorchester Historical Society, join the Dorchester Historical Society if they like. Uh, we do send out a, a an illustration of the week every week so that uh, people get an email with a Dorchester illustration and an explanation of what that was all about. Then uh, the Dorchester Atheneum.org, A-T-H-E-N-E-U-M, .org website is one that I have put together for all those aspects of Dorchester history that I can't keep in my mind. And so there's a place to put them and find them again. Well, we'll have links to all those in this week's show notes. And once again, Earl, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. To learn more about Earl Taylor and Tide Mills, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 130. We'll have links to the Tide Mill Institute and to Earl's sites, the Dorchester Athenaeum and the Dorchester Historical Society. We'll have illustrations showing how tide mills worked, and we'll include maps showing the location of some historic tide mills in the Boston area. Plus, we'll include information on visiting the two tide mills that remain. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Life Magazine's 1911 Boston number, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's one of the best ways to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. 